Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Invisible Heat. I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. And our story today takes us to Mobile, Alabama in March of 1981. Two men stand on a dark deserted street in the residential sector of Mobile. They remain in the shadows, their identities concealed by the cover of darkness. They seek to remain anonymous, undiscovered in the wind. The men stand in front of a large tree, their gazes fixed upwards. In a nearby trash can, a wallet sits half open, haphazardly discarded. In the wallet, the ID of a 19-year-old black boy. Above the two men in the tree, the boy's body hangs, visible for all to see. His name? Michael Donald. This is Invisible Heat. Welcome back to Invisible Heat, a weekly ethical true crime podcast in which Asad and I attempt to uncover the ugly truths behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. How are you doing, Asad? I'm doing very well. Did you add ethical? That was That's a new word in, in our description, the weekly ethical true crime podcast. I like that. Yes, <laughs> I like that too. I think that's a true representative of Invisible Hate, so why not? Yeah, fair enough. How has your week been going? Are you feeling better? I am, I said. Oh my gosh, I feel like so many freaky incidents are happening in my life right now. Remember I called you this week? I was freaked out by this Zoom. Oh, yeah. Someone tapped into your Zoom or, or hacked into it? Yeah, that's what I thought. So I was in a Zoom meeting with my team and all of a sudden I see these multicolored balloons on my screen. And I was confused and my team members were like, oh, is it your birthday? And I said, no, maybe it's my Zoom anniversary, right? Who knows? I ignored it. We moved on. And then I had another meeting in the evening and I was just, you know, talking to somebody. I was interviewing them, in fact. And I said, I kid you not. I see a thumbs up and a thumbs down. And again, <laughs> popping up on my screen. That nobody did. That nobody did. All the participants that were on the call were the participants that were supposed to be on that call. So nobody was Zoom bombing, at least not that we knew of. And Sounds I freaked out, I said. I freaked out. I logged out of all different Zoom accounts on my phone, on my laptop. I changed my Zoom room ID. I was calling them. I was calling you. And I decided to just switch to 
Riverside. Oh, okay. So a different software instead of Zoom. A different software instead of Zoom. And for meetings, I am going to use Google Meets now. Wow. Look at look at you. I feel like this is a big, big, big change for you. It is a big change. But let me tell you something. So I was obviously researching about what could have happened. And I was on Reddit. And it seems like this may be some kind of um, AI auto-generated emoji thing. And if that is the case, then I am really annoyed at Zoom because they should have told consumers <laughs> and users that this is going to happen. And it's pretty freaky. So I don't think they should be doing that. I feel like, you know, my privacy is being invaded by it. Uh, what do you think? Something, obviously, something caused those things to happen. And you need to figure out what the cause of it was. You know, I think for me, uh, I recognize that we're still in the early stages of all this technology. And like, weird things happen all the time when you're using this stuff, especially uh, with shitty internet or you know, people that don't know how to use software. <laughs> that clip early in the Zoom where where that person was in the courthouse and like they got the the cat face on them and they couldn't figure out how to get it <laughs> off. I, I just feel like, you know, these are the things that are that that are supposed to happen, you know, because technology is still new, you know, as as amazing as it is, as you know, it's been around for 20 years, but like, I think, you know, I don't think that you did anything wrong. I think it's fine for you to change software and I think you'll be happy with Riverside. But yeah, I, I'm not surprised that you got, I don't know, fake hacked by. I don't know what it was. I haven't figured it out. And listeners, if you know if it has happened to you, please write to me. <laughs> I do want to know what really happened. Yeah, that, that I, I would love to know as well. I said, how was your week? My week has been good. Sadia, I've been doing these morning workouts with a couple of friends of mine. We go ah. to this field and we do a mix of soccer drills because we all play soccer together. Then we also do some body weight exercises. And, you know, my 43, almost 44 year old body, it needs more time to recover. <laughs> <laughs> everything, everything aches when you wake up and get out of bed. And uh, soccer especially, I feel like, you know, it's a full body exercise. I don't know if you play I'm soccer. Do you play soccer? Sure you I, play? Said, I don't, but I'm pretty sure it is. I feel like there are muscles that you use in soccer that you don't use in anything else. And that you didn't even know existed. That didn't right? even know existed. And so, yeah, like we, you know, we have a game every Sunday and then for whatever reason, we decide on Monday morning that we're also going to work out. And usually we're just kind of limping around the field. <laughs> but I, look, I, I think it's good for us. We're, we're getting better, uh, more in shape. And it's it's always fun to exercise with other people, I think, um, is what Good it for you, I said. Yeah. Good yeah. for you. So should, should we, we get, get back started? to the case? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, Sadi, yeah, let's start with the details of the case. But before we do, we'd like to warn listeners of the potentially triggering nature of this story, as this case covers a really disturbing instance of lynching. And so while this case is incredibly important to cover and discuss, it can be hard to listen to. With that, let's get started. It's around 11 p.m. on Saturday, March 21st, 1981. 19-year-old Michael Donald sits in his eldest sister Betty's house in Mobile, Alabama. The family has gathered to watch a basketball game, a regular tradition of theirs. Just after 11 p.m., Donald's niece, Vanessa, claims that she needs cigarettes. Donald immediately offers to buy her some. 
He ventures out into the night, taking his way through the dark streets of Mobile in search of cigarettes. Meanwhile, two white men drive down the street. They too are searching, but their search is of a different kind. Some may even call it a hunt. Their names are James Knowles and Henry Francis Hayes, and both men are members of the United Clans of America, the Alabama chapter of the KKK. As Donald walks down the street, Knowles and Hayes pull up next to him, stopping to ask for directions to a nightclub. Donald pauses his cigarette endeavors to help the two men, stopping to give them directions. But before he can get the words out, one of the men pulls a gun, ordering Donald to get in the car. Faced with no other choice, the boy gets in the vehicle. Terrified, the men drive him to a secluded area, the next county over, where they park and force him out of the car. Upon exiting the vehicle, Donald begs for his life before attempting to escape by making a run for it. But unfortunately, he doesn't make it far. Hayes and Knowles catch up with Donald, grabbing him before he can get away. And then they begin to beat him repeatedly with a tree limb for what is believed to be over 100 times. They then choke him with a rope and shove a boot in his face before cutting his throat. Within seconds, Donald goes still, his young life stolen from him. Sally, this is just awful. I don't even know what to say. My immediate thought is this happened in 1981. So when I was two years old, so, you know, 40 years ago, some odd years, it it just seems so recent for something like this to happen. Yeah. Again, in, in my view of American history, the KKK is more like in the 60s as opposed to the 80s. And for this to, I mean, obviously, I know there's still remnants of it around, you know, now, you know, I'm not naive to think that that's not the case. But yeah, for this to happen. And then, again, we, we talk about this a lot, just the randomness of, of it. He's walking down the street, just doing something we all do. How many times have I gone out of my house at, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night to go to the corner store to grab whatever, a cookie, a drink, or whatever right. it may be, right? It just seems so mundane. Uh, and and then for it to all of a sudden escalate to his death in such a horrific way, first getting kidnapped, then getting beaten, then getting choked, and then getting his throat cut. I mean, just probably one of the more horrific things that we've talked about, and we've talked about a lot of awful things. You're right, Asit. Absolutely. It's so, so awful. And... To think of a 19-year-old kid, Asad, it goes back to how ordinary people can do such horrific, such terrible things to other humans, right? right? And to your point about the KKK, yes, it 
isn't normally or wasn't normally part of, you know, American consciousness or American psyche because everybody thought it was happening in the 60s. But it's been quite ubiquitous in American social, political discourse, um, not as explicitly visible, but it's just sad that people are not aware of the harm that organizations like this can cause. But you know what, Asit? The men don't stop there. Once they've confirmed that Donald is dead, they load his body into the car and drive back to the residential sector of Mobile. They then bring Donald's body to a house on Herndon Avenue. The house is owned by, guess who? Benny Hayes the second highest official in the United Clans of America. Oh, man. And get this, Asit. Inside, several members of the KKK are gathered for a social event, a party of sorts. The men then proudly bring Donald's body to the KKK gathering to, quote-unquote, show off their handiwork. Oh, my. How awful. How How awful is that? Absolutely atrocious, yep. They then carry his body across the street where they hang him from a tree for all to see. And then they're gone, disappearing into the night. They're trying to prove themselves to the rest of the KKK leadership team by bringing a dead body of a black person that they just murdered. I mean, how sick and grotesque is this? Like, right. as if they they're winning some sort of some brownie points or some street cred by bringing this body to this party, and then they all go and and hang it from a tree. Just, it, it's sickening. It's it's definitely sickening. It's sickening, and it also shows us it how entitled, how privileged they feel. Mm. And how they think they may get away with it. They think there is no accountability, right? Right. So, Michael Donald, Sade, you said he was just 19 years old. What else do we know about him? So, I said Donald was born in Mobile, Alabama in 1962. As we've already pointed out, he was 19 years old at the time of his death. He was the youngest of seven with four older sisters and two older brothers. According to a CNN interview with Donald's sister, Cecilia Perry, from an early age, Donald was quiet and well-mannered. He always went out of his way to help his mother, who loved him dearly. As a kid, sometimes, he would come home to find her laying down and realizing that something was wrong. He would do little things to help her. You know, as I was reading this, I said, I can relate to it in some ways when my kids try to do stuff for me. Mm. It makes me so happy and it really <laughs> makes my heart melt. Yeah. I'm not there yet. We're doing everything for Isha. But yes, I, I imagine. Yeah, totally. But anyways, going back to the case, at the time of his death, Donald attended a local trade school while working part time in the mailroom of the Mobile Press Register. He worked hard, giving the majority of the money he earned to his mother. He hoped to one day become a brick mason. In his free time, he played basketball on a community team. According to the New York Times, Donald's mother, Beulah May Donald, claimed that smoking was his only vice. Hmm. He was a good kid, Asad. 
Yeah, he definitely sounds like a kind of, yeah, typical kid, good kid, and one that definitely focused on the family and the importance of family. He seemed to love his mom and, and family members. And so, yeah, just really tragic that this happened. And it's also just tragic to think that, you know, they must have been so worried about where he was when he didn't come back after going to the store that night. So crazy. What do we know about the men um, that did this to him, Sadia? You mentioned there was two of them. What do we know about them? Well, as previously pointed out, both James Knowles and Henry Francis Hayes were members of the United Clans of America, the Alabama chapter of the KKK. How many chapters are there, Asad? Like, we've covered so many cases and there are always (laughs) these weird names, right? Yeah, that's true. That's a great point. Yeah. In fact, the 26-year-old Hayes was the son of Benny Hayes, the Alabama chapter's second-in-command and the owner of the very house in which the two young men brought Donald's body for show. Knowles was only 17 years old at the time of the crime. The two had basically gone out that night, rope and pistol in hand, in search of a black man on behalf of the KKK. Yeah, that's just crazy. Knowles being 17, that's so young and a time when you're so impressionable to, you know, people that are older than you that are showing you time and attention. Oh, that's that's really heartbreaking. And, you know, 26 is also pretty young. But and and this guy, you know, being the son of uh, Benny Hayes, the, the second in command, obviously, like he grew up around hate and bigotry, just really awful. Uh, Sadia, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, I'd love to hear more about the investigation and the trial around uh, Donald's murder. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So Sadia, were these men that killed Donald um, ever caught and punished for the crime? Thankfully, I said yes, they were. But the process of identifying and catching the two men was long and arduous. The morning after Donald's murder, residents of Mobile emerged from their homes to discover a deeply disturbing, gruesome sight. Donald's damaged body hanging from the tree. I can't even imagine, Asad. It's making me so anxious and sad. Yeah. For people to wake up and to, for people to see that, again, you know, in the early 80s, like, I would assume that this is something unique and that you don't see, mm. but maybe this is something that was more common down there at that time. But, yeah, just brutal. So it wasn't long before the news of Donald's death reached his mother and his siblings. In a CNN interview with Donald's sister, Cecilia Perry, she describes this horrific moment. Take a listen. That morning, one of my cousins called and said, they believe it's Michael. It's him. That's all I could say was, it's him. I was just numb. I couldn't believe that this was happening to us. And I looked outside my mom's door, and it was people everywhere. I mean, everywhere in the neighborhood. They had come from far and near. My sister, Cynthia Hamilton, she went to identify the body with my husband. 
Police immediately arrived on the scene and began to investigate, which is good. According to ABC News, it wasn't long before they found Donald's wallet in a dumpster nearby, allowing them to identify him using his ID. The police then learned that Klansmen lived in the area. Most specifically, they concluded that high-ranking KKK leader Benny Hayes lived right across the street from the tree in which Donald's body was found. In fact, according to the New York Times, Benny Hayes stood on his porch that morning watching the police investigate. This is so messed up, I said. Yes, so crazy and so the ego and the boldness of him and them. Yeah, it just it's it's astounding. Asa, then wait till I tell you what he said next and it will make your blood boil. So looking across at Donald's body, Hayes is believed to have said to himself, and I quote, A pretty sight. That's gonna look good on the news. Gonna look good for the clan. Unquote. Oh my goodness. Wow. So he was completely unfazed by it, Asad. Oh, of course. I mean, yeah, unfazed and bragging. It's like how you would describe a sunset or a sunrise, right? Like, whoa, a pretty sight. I mean, just disgusting. Just disgusting. So the night of Donald's murder, Klansmen had also burnt a cross on the Mobile County courthouse lawn. But police largely ignored this fact, despite the clear connection between the two events. And that's what I don't sometimes understand with police. I said, I feel like they give KKK the benefit of the doubt. And I wonder why that is. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it could be that the communities are close and people tend to be able to see multiple sides of a person. But yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know. Yeah, so in this case, there are no both sides or multiple sides, right? There's just one evil side. <laughs> right. No, I, I totally get that. I, yeah. So anyways, after interviewing several clan members, the police department apparently wasn't convinced or perhaps didn't want to be convinced that the United Klansmen were responsible for Donald's murder. Many officers assumed that his death must have had something to do with a drug deal gone wrong or an affair of some kind. What the hell is it? Yeah, just making assumptions, right? Exactly. Now, according to the New York Times, Donald's mother, Beola Mae Donald, was quick to defend his son, claiming that he had never done any drugs of any kind. So the police is basically putting the onus to prove innocence on the victim. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine how frustrating it would have been for her knowing how good of a son that that she had and to try to, yeah, like clear his name. And she even let officers search his room after which they tore the room apart, finding absolutely nothing. The investigation was further complicated when a man named Johnny Ray Kelly tipped the police off to three random men, implicating Ralph Eugene Hayes, Jimmy Edgar and Johnny Edgar in Donald's murder. This is a weird twist in the story, Asad. Yeah, this is really interesting. These are the first time these names have come up. Were these men involved? None of these men were involved, Asad. They had nothing to do with the murder, 
But according to CNN, Kelly claimed to have seen the men in the area that mm. night. Seeing blood on his clothes, he had asked the man what had happened and the man had allegedly responded that he had jumped a black dude. Oh, okay. Which is bizarre to me. Like Everybody seems a bit, I don't know what. However, in June of 1981, it was determined that Kelly had lied to the police and all three suspects were released. The FBI then got involved in the case, but they were unable to produce useful evidence and the investigation soon fizzled out. Jesus, you'd think that the FBI would have all sorts of resources. Right. To, right. I mean, for that to fizzle out, that's crazy. Yeah. Unsatisfied with the lack of results, May Donald and several others picketed the courthouse. Good for them. In August, her attorney, Michael Figures, organized a protest march attended by 8,000 people. Wow, that's great. That's great, right? Reverend Jesse Jackson came to Mobile to lead the protest, encouraging protesters to stay strong. According to the New York Times, Mobile Assistant U.S. Attorney Thomas Figures, the brother of May Donald's lawyer, Michael Figures, had been watching the case unfold and frustrated with the results, decided to take action. Good for him. He immediately sought to get the Justice Department to authorize a second investigation. And I know, listeners, these are a lot of facts. We are throwing them at you, but just <laughs> bear with us. We are trying to give you as much information about the case as we can so that you have a holistic picture of what really happened. Anyways, going back to the case, his request arrived in Washington just in time, alerting the Justice Department before they could close the case. They granted his request, assigning FBI agent James Bodman to the case. After following many unsuccessful leads, Figures and Bodman were able to uncover a critical piece of information. Listeners, pay close attention. On the night of the murder, James Knowles had returned to Benny Hayes' house with blood on his shirt. Given this new information, the Justice Department got an investigative grand jury together in Mobile. Several of the Klansmen were called to testify. Now, according to the New York Times, one witness claimed that Hayes had admitted to the murder. Mm. Which is surprising, but good. This information got back to Knowles, who immediately worried that Hayes would confess trading testimony against Knowles in an attempt to gain a reduced sentence. Yeah, real prisoner's dilemma here. Okay. Exactly. So this would basically leave Knowles bearing the majority of the guilt. Right. And overcome by fear, he decided to turn the tables. Wow. Okay. Yep. In June of 1983, Knowles confessed to FBI agent Bodman implicating Hayes in the crime. Knowles then officially pled guilty to violating Donald's civil rights, for which he was sentenced to life in prison. Wow, okay. This is a bit weird, Asad. The framing of this, violating Donald's civil rights, like brutally murdering Donald, is what really happened. Yeah, I wonder if his age had anything to do with it and uh, the fact that, you know, he did 
confess. Yeah, you know you're what right. happened. Maybe maybe it was just pleading guilty to a lesser but still equally you know important crime. But yeah, I'm I'm actually surprised that he got sentenced to life in prison. But we can talk about that later. Absolutely. So, anyways, he was then placed in a witness protection program, as was common at the time, for convicted members of the KKK. Hmm. In December of 1983, Hayes was tried for capital murder. At his trial, Knowles appeared as a prosecution witness, providing damning testimony that the defense was ultimately unable to argue against. In his testimony, Knowles explained the reasoning behind Donald's murder. And this is so weird and twisted, Asit, but just pay close attention to the reasoning yeah, here. I'm intrigued. The week of Donald's death, a black man named Josephus Anderson had been on trial for allegedly killing a white police officer in a robbery. When the jury was unable to reach a verdict, the case ended in mistrial with Anderson escaping punishment. This deeply angered the United Clans of America who sought to basically send a message in response to this ruling. According to CNN, Knowles said, and I quote, the Klan wanted the message to get back to the black people of not just Alabama, but the whole United States, that we would not stand for a black person killing a white police officer and getting away with it, especially in Alabama. On December 19, 1983, a predominantly white jury found Hayes guilty, sentencing him to life in prison. Again, life in prison, Asad, although Hayes was 26 at the time. However, Judge Braxton found this punishment insufficient. In February of 1984, he rejected the sentence, directing that Hayes receive a death sentence instead. Yes, Masid, but I am also against death sentence, so I am really struggling to see if that serves a purpose. But at the same time, the brutality of this murder is so intense and it's so horrific. I honestly don't know what to say or who to side with or whether or not a death sentence was justified in this case. Yeah. No, I'm more surprised that the judge found the original uh, life in prison sentence to be insufficient and then over, you know, essentially overruling it to a death sentence. That That is what surprised me. Absolutely. After much pushback, the Alabama Supreme Court finally upheld judges' decision in 1986 sentencing Hayes to death by electrocution. Eleven years later, on June 6, 1997, Hayes was finally executed for his crimes. I said, why do they take so long to basically implement death penalty? And I've seen this in so many cases, and I wonder if there is a legal explanation for it. Yeah, my general understanding is that the inmate will appeal everything that they can possibly appeal. And that appeals oh. process takes, you know, a decade or more potentially. Right. And so if there's any 
any issue at all that is wrong with the court case or potentially mm. wrong, they'll appeal it. And that that process just takes time and time and time, you know. And, and so, yeah, that's why you see a lot of times that the final execution, you know, of inmates, uh, you know, takes place sometimes, you know, decades later. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. By the way, I said this was the first time since 1913 that a white man had been executed for a crime committed against an African-American. Wow. Okay. I don't know how to think about that. Yeah. You know, again, I'm against the death penalty, but I can only imagine that in Alabama that there were probably plenty of opportunities for white men to be convicted and executed for crimes committed against African-Americans. So, it's, <laughs> you know, like, I guess in some ways that is progress, though I don't want to... You're right. You're absolutely right, I said. No, good information for us to, to know as well. So, Salia, let's take a quick break again. And when we come back, I want to hear all about how May Donald, Donald's mother, launched a civil case against the Alabama branch of the KKK. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, you've been telling us all about this case. Can you tell us about the lawsuit that May Donald filed against the United Clans of America, that Alabama chapter of the KKK? Yes, I said. So, according to the New York Times, in 1984, Morris Dees, co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center, suggested that May Donald file a civil suit against the members of the United Clans of America. The goal basically was to prove that leader Robert Shelton and his entire organization were liable for Donald's murder. And it makes a lot of sense to me. In doing so, they hoped to dismantle the organization. So May Donald and her attorney, Michael Figures, agreed to partake in the civil lawsuit. May Donald attended the civil trial, claiming that, and I quote, if they could stand to kill Michael, I can stand to see their faces. Unquote. Knowles once again testified, providing his account of what had happened. In the middle of his testimony, he turned to May Donald and sobbing apologized to her for the death of her son, begging for her forgiveness. He said, and I quote, I can't bring your son back. God knows, if I could trade places with him, I would. I can't. Whatever it takes, I have nothing. But I will have to do it. And if it takes me the rest of my life to pay it, any comfort it may bring, I hope it will. Unquote. May Donald replied, I do forgive you. From the day I found out who you all was, I asked God to take care of you all, and he has, unquote. That's, you know, sadly really powerful, and I think goes to, you know, Knowles recognizing what he did and apologizing, and I think it also is a testament, unfortunately, to his age again, right? Like, I think after whatever this was, three, four, five years, he's a lot older now and more perspective. For me, that's a really powerful statement on both sides, from the perpetrator and, you know, the mother of the victim. 
You're absolutely right, Asad, and especially with Knowles being so young, as you said. Mm-hmm. In February of 1987, a jury deliberated for four hours before awarding MacDonald seven million. Wow, so much! That's yeah. great. Yeah. This ruling devastated the United Clans of America, leaving them basically bankrupt, which is good. In an attempt to pay a small amount of the damages owed, the organization handed over its national headquarters building in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, valued at about $225,000. McDonald sold the building and used the money to buy her first home. Oh, good for her. Good for her. In a 1997 talk covered by C-SPAN, Morris Dees describes this justice as, take a listen. The national headquarters. I think it's a, the irony of that story was that Mrs. Donald, a black woman, ended up with the actual deed to the Klan's national headquarters. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of justice, you know. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really powerful, Sadia, to see one woman dismantle an entire chapter of the KKK, despite all the pain and suffering that she endured. It was nice to know that she was able to to kind of set this precedent of of winning a civil suit in that way. Um, really, really powerful stuff. Okay, now we are at our primary question of the hour of the yes. episode. Um, should Michael Donald's murder be considered a hate crime? Sadia, I'm guessing I know where you stand <laughs> on this, and this one seems pretty obvious, but why don't we go through the discussion points uh, anyways? I said, you're absolutely right. This case seems relatively straightforward as there doesn't seem to appear any complicating factors, right? All in all, this crime very clearly appears to have been a hate crime. The crime was committed by members of KKK, a white supremacist terrorist hate organization that sought to restore white supremacy through intimidation and violence aimed at black people. The group is literally as known to have been formed for the purpose of committing hate crimes and other acts of hate and violence against black people. And on top of that, Sadia, remember in his testimony, Knowles explicitly stated that he and Hayes had gone hunting for a black person that night. That was intended as an act of revenge for the you know alleged murder of a white policeman by a black man. And so I feel like, yeah. This seems pretty straightforward. What's interesting to me, Sadia, is I wonder if Knowles didn't come forward himself, whether this would have been solved. That's a great question. You know, I, I think it still has all the hallmarks of a hate crime, right? Like you don't hang up a, a black person. I mean, that in and of itself is right. indicative of a certain style of hate crime, right? And so I think it still would have been considered a hate crime, but I, it's really fascinating to me. That essentially, yeah, this might have gone unsolved if the people didn't come forward themselves. You're absolutely right, Asad. And I would really like to think what listeners think. And do they think the case would not have been solved had um, Knowles decided not to come forward? Yeah. So, Sadia, where are Knowles, Hayes and Donald's family members today? Asad, James Knowles remains in federal prison where he will remain for the rest of his days serving out his life sentence. As we mentioned earlier, Henry Francis Hayes was executed in Alabama in June of 1997, serving his punishment for the horrific crime he committed 16 years earlier. As for Donald's family members, unfortunately, 
His mother passed away in a mobile hospital from natural causes on September 17, 1988. She was just 67 years old. His siblings continued to live out their lives missing their youngest brother and their mother each and every day. Unfortunately, the pain still stays with them. In a CNN interview with Donald's sister Cecilia Perry, she expresses this pain in these words. Living Take a listen. Mobile was a quiet town. It's nothing but oak trees. But after March 1981, it was kind of like creepy to me to just look at the trees. The hurt is still there. The hurt my mom went through. I just visualize her face and I go like, I can't talk about it today. We can only hope that this hurt continues to fade over time and that Donald's family is able to recover from this atrocious crime. And as said, you and I have talked about this several times, but I'll say it again. While violent, racially motivated crimes like this may not seem to happen as often, there is no doubt that these crimes continue to plague our society to this day. We hope that in shedding light on the stories and experiences of victims such as Michael Donald, we may raise a greater degree of awareness of such crimes and the underlying prejudices that unfortunately continue to exist within our society today. Absolutely. Very well said, Sadia. You know, as always Sadia, we like to share where our listeners can help if they want to help in something involved in this case. Where where can we send our listeners to? Absolutely, Asad. So listeners can help by supporting non-profit organizations that seek to protect and advance the rights of black individuals such as the Black Lives Matter movement, the National Action Network, the grassroots law project and color of change thank you once again for listening to invisible hate if you want to learn more check out links in the show notes about the case please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover you can reach us at info@invisiblehatepodcast.com You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Heat Podcast. Yeah, thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Emmanuel Monahan and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson, and we'll be back next week as always with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, I am Asad Bhatt and I am Sadia Khan. Take care.